Hi, this is Violet Lang. Welcome to my podcast, The Pleasure Path, all about love, dating, relationships, and femininity. I help successful, spiritual women find their pleasure and their power to create healthy partnership. Whether you are a survivor of sexual abuse and exploitation or not, you probably know someone who is. This is a systemic issue that I'm passionate about changing, and I'm doing a matching campaign for my birthday to support CASE, the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. Join their executive director, Katha Morris-Hoffer, in this important episode. So welcome everyone to another episode of The Pleasure Path. I am Violet Lang, and I'm really excited today to talk about an important aspect of healing in a systemic way across our communities, across our cultures, and and across the world. But I'm talking today with Katha Morris-Hoffer. She's the executive director of an organization called CASE, which is the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. And Katha has a long history both with CASE and also with um, this field. So Katha, do you mind telling us a little more about yourself and how you got involved? Sure. Well, I am an attorney and I've been the executive director of CASE since 2013. Um, I joined CASE in 2009 uh, when a legal services and policy advocacy nonprofit that I had created became a part of CASE, um, which for the first three years of its existence um, was a, a small entity focused exclusively on raising awareness about the demand side of the commercial sex industry and really getting people to focus on um, the men who purchase sex as being you know the source of all the problems um, related to prostitution and sex trafficking um, so um, as i said i've been with with case since 2009 when when case expanded its vision and mission to address the full spectrum of sexual harm from sexual harassment in the workplace or school, through rape and all the places it happens, and including um, um, the harms that are done to the mostly women, um, but also um, uh, boys and and men and girls who are in the sex trade. Um, And and I ended up on on this path um, really because um, when I was a teenager, I um, became, I began to be aware of how deeply flawed our broader community um, is when it comes to seeing and responding to really the epidemic levels of, of sexual harm and violation that exists inside our broader community and frankly inside every community of our broader community. Um, I, I was um, a girl who was raised to be pretty conscious of social justice movements. Um, so I had kind of figured out by the time I was 13 or 14 that I really wanted to um, find a, a way that I could be helpful in the world. And also at about that same time, I was boy crazy. I just um, was interested in all things having to do with sexuality and sex and romance and how boys and girls and men and women um, uh, 
and, and all people come together in romantic and sexual relationships. Um, and so I, I got a, a job at Planned Parenthood in my high school. Um, they, they offered this program where you could sign up and go through a really intensive um, semester-long course. And if you did well in the course, then you could apply to become a, a paid peer educator in the high school. Um, and uh, so I did that and then spent um, the rest of my time in high school being available to um, my fellow students. Um, who had questions about uh, birth control or anything related to sex and sexuality. They knew they could come to me and it would be my job to help get them to the resources that they needed so that they could have the information and support they needed for whatever questions or challenges that they were dealing with. And while I had anticipated that people would have lots of questions about um, unplanned pregnancies or sexually transmitted infections or other things like that, um, I also started learning um, from survivors about their experiences of unwanted sex. And then also seeing how their families or friends or the school or the broader community would respond when they, when they sought help. Um, and, and wow, I, I felt really um, pretty powerless. Um, all I could do was um, was be expressing support and belief um, to the mostly young women, but occasional young men who were describing things to me that should never have happened. Um, but I, I, I didn't feel like I was a really powerful ally to them. Um, and fundamentally, I went to college and law school, um, and and my whole career has essentially been an effort to try to feel a little more useful um, to survivors and uh, a little more helpful in the social movements and social efforts to make our overall society a place in which sexual violation happens less frequently and a place in which when it does, survivors get the responses that they deserve and and that you know i want our society to become a place that is capable of um holding people accountable when they hurt other people um in ways that also acknowledge and recognize the continuing humanity even of perpetrators um but that nonetheless um hold people accountable so that so that sexual violation happens less often. Um, so that's really um, my my background and kind of how I ended up here uh, at Case. Um, I've just been trying <laughs> to figure out ways to be useful um, since I was 16. Um, and I've been just profoundly lucky to find at case um amazing colleagues um who also share my passion for um working with the countless women and girls and some men and boys who who see um the way things are right now 
um, and also see that things can be much better than they are when it comes to sex and sexuality and sexual interactions. Absolutely. I'm so moved by your by your journey and, and just how deeply you're committed to serving and how this topic and this this issue has been a through line through your life ever since you were young. It's it's really amazing just the dedication that you're offering to the people that you work with and, and to this mission as a whole. Well, it's a it's a continuing uh, just privilege. I, I think there are many people who um, do volunteer work for um, organizations. Um, I, I, I have a refrain I have heard very often from people who have gotten involved in nonprofits by doing volunteer work, whether it is volunteering at a pet shelter or whether it is volunteering at a domestic violence services organization. I have heard so many people say to me, you know what, I think I get a lot more out of it than I end up giving. Um, mm -hmm. Because when you, um, when you put yourself in a place to try to be helpful to a person or an entity or a system that is in crisis, what you end up being exposed to is the profound resilience of people, um, even people who have been treated horribly and harmed. Um, you end up being exposed to um, a, a level of bravery and courage and wisdom and strength that I think you can't help but be inspired by. Um, it's certainly been my experience. Um, you know, ever since I, I started seeing the incredible bravery and resilience of the, of the girls who were telling me that they had endured unwanted sex. Um, when they let me stand next to them, when they allowed me to try to be helpful to them, um, they were also giving me a window into their bravery and their courage and their wisdom. Um, and and it, it has continued for my whole career uh, to be the case that, um, that, that people who have been through um, experiences that they should not have been through, experiences that I wish they had never endured, I, I want there to be less of, um, I am I am constantly exposed to, um, I think, um, a, a resilience um, and and a courage, and and frankly a commitment to love um, mm -hmm. that that I it, that sustains me and that is a is a gift to me and and to my life. Um, yeah. Yes. It's, it's far more rewarding. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Well, it, it, it really, it's just far more rewarding than it is taxing um, mm -hmm. to, be, to be working on these issues, frankly. I, I, I would be, and 
during the periods of my life where I was having to focus on other things, for example, when I was enduring law school, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it was much more exhausting to me um, to be out of environments where I was with people who were attempting to make things better and attempting to address problems um, than it is to be with people who are linking arms and, and joining hands to, to try to respond to things that can be made better. Mm. What I really hear in your share is a sense of the resiliency you spoke of, but also the resiliency embedded in groups of people and in community. And that's something that I really am, admire and am sparked by with CASE is the focus on survivor and survivor leadership and survivor informed you know, uh, approaches and also the sense of community that I've, I've heard from Heather Ernest, who uh, is one of my clients and an amazing lady who helped with the race with CASE. But can you tell just a little bit more um, about that first part, the resiliency and the survivor leadership and how that informs the work that you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the, the work that we do at CASE, there are four pillars to our work. Um, there is um, uh, legal services, so we provide free comprehensive legal representation to anybody in um, the Chicagoland or Cook County area um, who has endured sexual harm or violation. We have our second pillar is policy and legislation. So we do work to attempt to change the systems um, and, and the structures and the, and the attitudes of lawmakers and the laws that exist um, both at the local city, county, and state level in Illinois. Um, we do prevention education. Um, so we are working with um, youth aged 14 to 18, primarily in high schools, to help um, them become more empowered, better critical thinkers and seers about the culture they are in, better able to navigate through uh, rape culture and be effective allies um, who can help prevent and respond appropriately to sexual violation. And then our fourth pillar is community engagement. And that's the work where um, we're really trying to facilitate the transformation of the hearts and minds of the broader community so that the broader community has a, a deeper and richer understanding of the ways in which sexual harm and violation happen, um, the, the, um, the ways in which um, those harms can be prevented, um, and the ways in which they ought to be responded to. And in all of this work, we, we are guided by um, what we learn from the people who have expertise in sexual harm and violation, um, the, the people who've, who've lived through it. Um, and, you know, we exist because no, despite the amazing strength and resilience of, of um, frankly, most survivors, um, every survivor really deserves to have a whole village and a whole community around her or him um, in, in order to, to help um, create sustenance and better 
mechanisms for preventing and seeing the problems that exist. Um, uh, so, um, in, in everything that we do, uh, we try to make sure that we are accountable to and engaged with uh, survivors. Um, and also, you know, case exists because and in the same way that white people cannot and should not expect uh, people of color to do all the work of transforming our society mm -hmm. from one that is unequal on the basis of race. Neither can people who haven't lived through sexual violation rely on people with the lived um, expertise in it to do all the work, right? We need mm -hmm. organizations. We need lots of people. We need the broader community coming together. Um, and we need organizations like CASE that can, um, that can provide uh, direct consultations and uh, advice and representation to individual survivors that can um, figure out what are the policy and law policies and laws that need to be changed. What are the educational campaigns that need to be um, engaged in? Um, and there need to be organizations like Case that do this work that shoulder more of the of the burden of shifting our broader culture and the ways in which we all think about and respond to sexual harm. Thank you so much for sharing that, Kefa. I think the work that all of you do is amazing, and I completely agree with the survivor leader, survivor informed, but we all have a responsibility because this is not just an isolated issue. This is an absolutely systemic problem. And can you talk a little bit more uh, about just the size of it and, and how it is affected in so many populations? Because I'll, I'll share just a few things um, that I know, but you're clearly the expert in this, you know, I loved what you said in the intro that this is something that's in every single sub community. And, you know, most of the women I work with are survivors in some way, maybe not of sex trafficking, although I have worked with women who are survivors of that, but, you know, survivors of incest or um, sexual assault on college campuses, or you name it, workplace harassment. Um, and I think sometimes we, we might have a tendency to think that it happens in other places to other people, but yeah. it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's also, it's also um, part of a much bigger problem, you know, porn, prostitution, um, sex trafficking, race inequality, uh, socioeconomic inequality. So I know this is a huge can of worms that we can't do in one podcast, but can you just share a little bit more about kind of the, the systemic and also different places that this happens? Yeah, absolutely. And I really, I really deeply appreciate what you've said. It's been, you know, over the last 20 years, it's been like, um, I mean, remember when our society sort of like uh, gasped and said, oh my gosh, there's a problem with sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. And then, and then the next year it was, oh, there's a problem of sexual abuse in the military. And then it was, oh my goodness. I can't believe it. There's a problem with sexual assault on college campuses. And the next year was, oh my goodness, we have a problem in Hollywood, right? Like, when are we going to learn that every, um, every environment in our community 
is of course going to have this problem until or unless it is willing to realize that this problem erupts in every subcommunity because it is a, um, a, a human problem um, that exists in our, in our broader culture, right? Um, we cannot simply think um, that it's not going to happen in our uh, church community um, uh, unless we talk about how it happens in all other places and therefore what are we doing in this community that we are a part of, right? High schools and elementary schools and workplaces and, you know, and anywhere where communities of people come together, um, they can prevent and appropriately respond to sexually harmful conduct if they're willing to recognize that it is something that in the absence of intention to prevent and respond to it happens, right? Um, yes. And, and, you know, statistically, what, what research and scientists have been able to demonstrate um, based on asking <laughs> and then listening to people um, are, are things like, um, you know, almost 40% of women overall in the United States will experience um, either uh, rape or sexual harassment or domestic violence or a another form of serious harm or violation. Uh, one of the statistics put out by the US Department of Justice, which is not sort of a particularly progressive institution, yes. um, you know, they found that 24.1% of American women will experience at least one act of attempted uh, rape or domestic violence um, uh, at the hands of an intimate partner, a current or former intimate partner. So when you, and, and that is just 24.1% of women experiencing a, a violation, a, a significant violation or a threat of, you know, of almost completed or violation at the hands of a current or former intimate partner. So we're not even talking about the sexual harm that gets inflicted on people by acquaintances or friends or colleagues or strangers. Um, and if you really look into the research and it's parsed in many different ways, um, you end up realizing that um, one of the images that I use sometimes is I ask people to imagine a very large newborn ward at a hospital. <laughs> um, you know, a wonderful room with a hundred um, baby girls of all different races and ethnicities. Um, if you have a, a, a full, you know, ward, a hundred baby girls, look, if we don't change things, if we don't, if we just let things continue as they are, then 40 of those girls will grow up and have to, um, or, and, and they will have lived through, if they, if they survive, um, some form of unacceptable sexual or gender-based violation, right? That is, 
that is crazy. And it is not inevitable. And likewise, if you were to imagine a room, a newborn ward um, full of, of, of men, the research suggests that unless we change things, 20% of those innocent, lovely, charming baby boys, 20% um, of them will grow up to have participated in some form of sex harassment or sexual assault or purchasing of sex. Um, we can do better than this. There's literally nothing about a penis or testosterone um, that, that makes sexually abusive conduct inevitable. Um, you know, one of the reasons I am so optimistic and I know that with such confidence is that most men in the world are actually capable of living their whole entire lives without once sexually harassing or sexually assaulting um, a, a girl or a woman. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, even if it was only, you know, 30 or 40 percent of men who are capable of living their whole lives without causing harm to other to other people, including other boys and men, uh, I think that would still be evidence that there's nothing inevitable about sexually harmful conduct. Um, but, um, you know, we, we live in a society where um, overall, um, girls and women are disproportionately impacted by um, conduct that is not inevitable, that is mostly perpetrated by men. Um, and then there are, there are communities that, that are even more burdened. Um, black women, other women of color um, are even more disproportionately targeted for and harmed by sexual um, harm um, than white women. People living with disabilities, um, uh, members of the GLBTQ community, immigrants and undocumented folks, um, people um, uh, with very, um, who are very under-resourced, people living in poverty. All these groups are disproportionately impacted by sexual harm and violation. And, and the ways in which we respond to and seek to prevent um, sexual harm and violation need to be really attentive to um, to, to what that information tells us. Um, if we know that um, girls and women, people of color, low-income people, GLBTQ folks, disabled people, immigrants and undocumented folks are disproportionately harmed by sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace and in school and rape and prostitution and sex trafficking. That's information that tells us that it's, it's not just about like gender or the ways in which people think about masculinity and femininity. Femininity are not the only things that cause sexual harm or that, that facilitate sexual violation. It really is about, a lot of it's about inequality and vulnerability. And we have to be attentive to um, the complex lived realities of, um, of individuals um, and we have to be attentive to the ways in which groups in our society are disproportionately given access to resources and support and dignity, um, or you know, disproportionately given a pass 
um, and, and not held accountable for conduct. Yes, thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm glad that you're highlighting it's so much more than just what, what typically we might think it is between gender and, and it relates to an article that you had written in the case website under their news section. And if anyone listening, you know, has a hunger to learn more about this, there's a ton of amazing articles and posts on the case.org um, section of the site about news, but about this myth that we think sexual violence is perpetrated by, by someone we'd call like a monster. Yeah. And to take that even further, you know, we, we will uh, over, overly blame um, those same marginalized populations, those same marginalized groups and certain races as, as having that, you know, perpetrator thing when so many perpetrators are, are professional white men and people that we wouldn't want to, in quotations, you know, think of that way, but it's that polarized thinking that totally keeps this festering. And so um, can you talk a little bit about that kind of myth of, of the monster and how that's perpetuating this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been talking and writing about this thing I call the monster myth for many, many years because um, I fundamentally, um, people understand appropriately that sexual violation is, 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 is uniquely harmful and, and, and really does monstrous um, damage um, to a person's sense of dignity or worth or their, their sense of integrity. Um, but people who haven't lived through sexual viol violation, who mostly um, have experienced it at the hands of somebody they knew and generally previously liked. Um, it, people without a lived experience um, conclude that, you know, to do monstrous harm, um, you have to be a monster. And, 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 and therefore, I think our, our culture sort of has and has been too complacent in allowing there to be an equation or a, an equation of um, a rapist with a monster or somebody who, one of the things that people often say when somebody is accused of sexual assault is, oh, he wouldn't do that, or he couldn't possibly do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. people, people want to believe that somebody who is generally good and smart and loving and capable of following social norms that, that that makes a person incapable of engaging in harmful or abusive conduct and and the truth and the reality that survivors are confronted with usually in the worst moments of their life is that there's absolutely nothing that prevents, there's, there's no sort of automatic switch in a person who's capable of, you know, following the rules and going to college and having a successful career and being nice and kind and not kicking dogs and, you know, uh, being a charming host on, you know, a TV show or a very effective judge. There's not like there's some kind of internal switch in people who are capable of doing things like that that then prevents them from also 
engaging in, in really harmful conduct. Um, but, uh, but again, um, survivors tend to learn this in the worst possible moment. They typically, survivors end up experiencing sexual harm or violation in circumstances where they have, um, they have on some level willingly um, put themselves in a, in a circumstance of vulnerability to the person who is harming or abusing them. And they've done so specifically because that person has demonstrated all the regular cues of um, not being a monster, right? Women don't go on dates with men who come up to them and punch them in the face. Um, we don't uh, nominate judges to the bench who, who you know, tell people, um, you know, I like to rape women all through high school and college. Um, people who are, who are capable of, you know, following the rules and, and appearing to be kind or charming or funny or whatever um, are, are, again, people who people trust. And then in those intimate circumstances, as, as a sexual act of sexual violation is happening, um, because survivors have been kind of led by our culture to believe that, you know, rapists are monsters, um, they're, they're just so frequently having an experience that is a shock. Um, as as much as is it all it is also an experience of violation and, and degradation, um, and and also because we want I think also we want as a society for things to be easy. We want to believe that we can judge a book by its cover. Um, we want to believe that we can look at a man and sort of assess the success of his career or his charisma or his look and be confident um, that he's not going to be hurtful in private. Um, you know, we, we want it to be simple and easy. Um, and, and, and frankly, there are a lot of people who really resent having comfortable assumptions upended. Um, it was profoundly uncomfortable for so many people I think particularly for people who, um, for example, were really excited about um, Donald Trump being able to nominate someone to the Supreme Court, right? Nobody wanted to think that Kavanaugh could possibly be somebody who would do something as awful as engage in sexual assault. Um, and, and people's desires for things to be simple uh, often are the thing that they cling to in the face of pretty compelling evidence that um, that, a, that a person can be both smart and successful and talented and capable of pretty awful behavior. Absolutely. And I think that's the sort of accountability that we have to be awake to and not blind. You know, we've, we've used these shortcuts of assuming someone's a good person and that then negates the other things that they've done that were not an in integrity. And I know from my own personal journey, you know, my experience of sexual assault was with a family member. And when that family member I talked to, they said, oh, I love you too much to have done that. It was just complete denial. And I think it's the same thing in relationships. We want the fairy tale Disney where the Prince Charming sweeps us off our feet and we just forget boundaries and safety and 
um, all the other things that, that are part of actually a healthy relationship. And so it feels like it's part of every thread of every thread of, of our relational lives. Um, and yeah, I'm so glad that, that we're having this conversation and doing this work. Yeah. I, I mean, and it's so, it's, it's so hard um, for so many survivors who also have an experience of the person who harms them deeply, right? Also being a person that they simultaneously have positive feelings for, right? That is complicated and, and traumatizing. Um, and then when the person is engaged in harm, adds a layer of dishonesty to it, right? Of saying either it didn't happen, something that happened didn't happen, or saying, um, because I don't have the intent to be a monster, therefore the, the, the actions that I engaged in weren't monstrous. Mm -hmm. Those messages are, are crazy making. Um, they are, are so hard um, to, to hear and to, and to survive, especially in a culture that continues to try to hang on to this myth that, that we can tell, you know, that we can sort of tell apart you know, the good guys from the bad guys um, easily, that that's an easy thing to do. Um, when the only way to do it is by listening um, to the voices of people who have been um, in situations of vulnerability um, with, with people who can say, you know, whether or not um, a, a person um, responds to vulnerability um, in a way that is abusive of another person's vulnerability or whether, you know, they're a person who um, is really committed to, um, uh, to engaging in, in actions that respect the dignity and integrity of people that they're with regardless of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing how I mean, in a, in a, in a atrocious way, how even if someone hasn't experienced these things, we all have a responsibility to be aware, awake, vulnerable, and give equality to people's voices and, and people's experiences so that it doesn't perpetuate. I mean, what I find sometimes is that the people who seem the least receptive to acknowledging what's happening you know, they have their traumas that they haven't acknowledged and accepted and, and it perpetuates itself. Obviously, if 24% if of women are experiencing rape or violence from a partner or former partner, you know, there's children in those families that are, that are witnessing that. And um, I'm so glad that the work that you all do also focuses on prevention programs and training and, um, and speaking to youth and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I it's so important to us that we, we do that because, um, you know, again, um, not only do we recognize that, um, you know, uh, it is otherwise regular men um, who engage in the problems of sexual harm, but we also recognize that 
um, boys and men and girls and women really deserve access to tools and to education and information that can help them figure out how they can um, uh, resist whatever uh, cultural norms or messages support and promote sexual harm and, and, and be helped in figuring out how they can amplify practices and um, messages and communications that, that promote um, equality and, um, and dignity. And, you know, teenage boys, just like, you know, girls as, as they're developing their sexuality and, and um, thinking about how they want their lives to unfold, obviously they're not thinking, oh, you know, I'm looking forward to, you know, my one in four chance of enduring some horrible act of sexual violation um, or gender-based violence. And, and boys are not um, looking forward to becoming men who harm other people. Um, but both boys and girls equally deserve really smart um, tools that they can use so that they can um, know how to navigate um, in ways that, that, that promote their dignity and the dignity um, of other people. Um, it's clearly not talking about sexual um, violation uh, it is, is not a, a useful preventative. Um, and, and, and we think that, you know, talking about it and thinking about it and uh, is um, the, the educational work that we do in high schools, um, we're able to do pre-tests and post-tests on the knowledge, the attitudes and the behavioral intentions of the boys and girls who go through our educational programs. And we are able to um, track and, and see substantial improvement in their knowledge and their understanding of things related to um, sexual violation and cultural norms. Um, and we're able to see substantial um, improvements in the attitudes they have. For example, attitudes um, grow from acceptance to rejection of degrading and violent language um, used against girls and women. Um, uh, boys uh, have, uh, when they go through our, our programs, and, and girls, um, their awareness that people who are in the sex industry, um, people who are prostituted, um, uh, they go from thinking that they're there because they love it and they make a great deal of money to understanding what all the research says, which is most of them are there because they, they don't have access to a better way of surviving or a way of surviving that is appealing to them. Um, and Yes, or they were forcefully, you know, kidnapped or, or taken into that industry. It wasn't a choice. Right, yeah. And, um, um, yeah, there is overwhelming overlap between the populations of people who are in the supply side of the sex industry and, and people whose life circumstances meet most definitions of being a victim of sex trafficking. Um, the international definition of sex trafficking um, says that a person is a victim of sex trafficking when they're engaging in 
um, the commercial sex industry, not just as a result as a resort of as a result of force fraud or coercion, but also if they're in, in the sex industry as a result of the abuse of a position of power by somebody else or the exploitation of a position of vulnerability by them. Yes. Um, and, you know, particularly, so particularly under the international definition, um, there, there just aren't that many people um, in the sex industry who are really there um, in the presence of choices, the kind of choices that anybody with any privilege would consider to be meaningful choices. Absolutely. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't people who are voluntarily in the sex industry. It is to say, however, that um, research makes it really clear that, that most people in the sex industry would much rather, um, much, much rather be um, um, surviving in other ways. Yes. And I know we don't have necessarily time on this episode to go into why legalizing prostitution is not the answer to reducing demand. Uh, but I think it's important for anyone listening to this and really anyone uh, who's a youth or an adult to better understand um, this industry, but also porn and all of the different layers in our culture that relate to everything from objectification to massive abuse and violence and the perpetuation of it. That's right. That's totally right. Well, I'd love to talk about that stuff anytime you want to. And I'm so appreciative of this opportunity. Um, I am, in the last couple of years, the, the, um, the awakening of our broader culture to the, the real epidemic nature of the problem of sexual violation um, has been very exciting to me, in part because it hasn't just been a, a situation where the mass media and more and more people, thanks to the Me Too movement, are aware of the scope and the nature of the problem. But it's been so obvious that so many more um, women um, and girls and men and boys are, are willingly linking arms with each other um, in ways that, um, that also see the diverse um, ethnicities and backgrounds of of, um, of people who are survivors of sexual abuse um, and harm. So many people are, are getting really even more powerful because they are joining with each other and um, working um, across communities and also within communities. It's, it's, it has been an even more exciting time than usual to be at PACE. Um, to be talking with somebody who is, you know, on the West Coast, <laughs> who um, is, is really invested in um, helping our world be a healthier and, and safer place. Um, you know, this conversation is kind of, you know, one of the things that to me feels like um, this really exciting time we are in, where so many of us are finding new ways to connect with each other, um, to be allies to each other, um, and and you know to to do the continuous work that we need to do, and of inspiring each other 
um, could keep going. Um, you know, um, it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you, and it's it's just a really exciting um, and important time um, to be doing this work. And I'm again, I am um, I'm profoundly grateful to be able to work in Chicago at Case. Um, it's an organization that is full of brave and brilliant people um, serving brave and brilliant people and collaborating with brave and brilliant people um, um, across Chicago and, and throughout Chicago, um, both the survivors and the allies that we have in the community here. But we also are, um, and we know we are surrounded by so many allies um, and, and fellow warriors um, from across the country and across the world who are, who are really, you know, with us in this mission that, that Case has um, to, to end sexual exploitation and all forms of sexual harm. Yes. And for those of you that are listening, you know, whether you're in Chicago or whether you're somewhere else across the world, you know, you can... Um, recognize this as an exciting time for change, just like Kefa was, sh was sharing. You know, you've been using your ears listening to this episode. I encourage you to use your voice and to use your <laughs> thumbs and fingers on social media and on all of those places to continue to bring awareness and not turn a blind eye. And um, I'm doing a matching uh, thing. So anyone who donates to Case, if you put my name just in the comments, I will be matching any donation. And I can't think of a better thing to do with our dollars and with our time and with our energy than to heal this problem of sexual exploitation and abuse because it's so prevalent. And when we don't heal that, we're just going to be perpetuating the cycle. And that has profound impact, not just economically, but also relationally and what we can create in our relationships and with our children and with our families. So thank you so much, Katha, for, for sharing your um your passion and your wisdom with us well thank you it's been an absolute privilege and, and treat to talk with you and thank you for supporting case as you are already doing so much to support so many um in the world um it's, it's really a treat to talk with you about it well it's my pleasure and Yes, everyone can go to case.org, C-A-A-S-E.org forward slash donate. And I encourage you to also check out their news section and get informed and become part of the solution. Thank you so much, Katha. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and turning on for healthy love. Because better relationships mean more power, more creativity, and a better planet. I'm here to end the suffering of abuse and loneliness, and it starts with you. Please subscribe to my show and leave a review. If you want more love, pleasure, and power in your life, go to violetlang.com forward slash talk. That's violetlang.com forward slash talk to sign up for a free Breakthrough to Love call. These are special deep dives only for women who are committed and ready for lasting love. If that's you, book your time now with me or my team.